Chapter thirty of Organic Evolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gimes. Organic Evolution by Richard Swan Lull. Chapter thirty, Part B. Saurischia. The earliest known dinosaurs belong to the Saurischia, and they exist with conservative changes to the close of the Mesozoic. The principal evolutionary changes which they show are a gradual increase in size of body and a proportionate decrease in that of the forelimbs, the function of which is never support nor locomotion, but solely prehension. These creatures, therefore, walked or ran entirely on the hind legs, the anterior part of the body being balanced by the weight of the long slender tail. When they ran, the limbs were well under the body, and the stride was alternate like that of an ostrich or bipedal lizard, as their numerous bird-like footprints impressed upon the sands of the Connecticut Valley imply. Some of the better-known carnivorous dinosaurs are Cholerosauria. Representatives of this group are Podocosaurus, an extremely slender, agile, carnivorous dinosaur from the Triassic sandstones of the Connecticut Valley, South Hadley, Massachusetts. The body, tail, and limbs are preserved in the one specimen known, and indicate an animal about four feet in length, of which the tail includes more than half. Many footprints described under the name of Grolator, he who walks on stilts, were undoubtedly made by creatures similar to this. Coderus, with bones so delicate that the walls of the vertebra, for instance, are of paper-like thinness. It was a small form from the Morrison Formation of Wyoming and the Potomac Formation of Maryland, and is incompletely known. Consignathus, known from a very perfect skeleton from the Jurassic of Eichstatt, Bavaria, and coming from the famous Stolenhofen Quarry, which also produced Archaeopteryx, the earliest known bird. Compsognathus, as has already been stated, is the smallest recorded dinosaur. Pachypodosauria. The most notable genus here is Anchisaurus, which, together with the allied Amosaurus, is known from several more or less complete skeletons from the Connecticut Trias. The three most perfect skeletons come from the town of Manchester, and range in size from perhaps five to eight feet. The hand was large compared with that of later forms, and bore one large and two smaller grasping claws. The teeth were not so perfectly adapted to a flesh diet as were those of the theropoda. These skeletons are preserved at Yale. Zanclodone and Placosaurus, larger old-world forms, out of the latter of which von Huny would derive not only the latter megalosaurs, but the amphibious dinosaur, Sauropoda, as well. Theropoda. This group includes Allosaurus, one of the best known of carnivorous dinosaurs, for there is in the American Museum of Natural History, New York City, a practically complete skeleton mounted in a most lifelike pose. This creature is of gigantic size, being 34 feet 2 inches in length by 8 feet 3 inches high, in its present almost quadrupedal posture. It was collected from Como Bluff, near Medicine Bow, Wyoming, whence came so many of the wonderful dinosaurian and contemporaneous mammalian species which the Yale Museum possesses. 
Alasaurus had a comparatively inflexible, though deep body, and a tail which could undergo but little movement as compared with that of a modern lizard or a snake, since its principal use, that of a counterpoise, was best subserved by its being held out rather stiffly behind. The jaws were loosely hung, and evidently could be opened very widely, and there is evidence of some movement of the upper jaw upon the cranium as though the chunks of the prey which the creature tore off were at times of considerable size, or possibly the victim was swallowed whole. The teeth are powerful, recurved, and admirably adapted to the owner's implied habits. Both hands and feet were armed with powerful curved claws, doubtless sheathed with talons like those of a huge eagle. Ceratosaurus, which is known from a single well-preserved skeleton in the United States National Museum, and is a contemporary of Allosaurus, though not so large. The remarkable thing about Ceratosaurus, as the name implies, is the presence of a compressed, horn-like process upon the nose, which must have borne a horny sheath. This is one of the extremely rare associations of the primarily defensive horns and carnivorous habits, for among the mammals, and indeed the later dinosaurs, as well, it is the herbivores only which are thus endowed. The culminating form of this race has been most appropriately named Tyrannosaurus rex, the king of tyrant saurians, by Professor Osborne, and was, as Matthew says, the climax of evolution of the giant, flesh-eating dinosaurs. It reached a length of forty-seven feet, and in bulk must have equaled the mammoth, or the mastodon, or the largest living elephants. The massive hind limbs, supporting the whole weight of the body, exceeded the limbs of the great proboscideans in bulk, and in a standing position the animal was eighteen to twenty feet high, as against twelve for the largest African elephants, or the southern mammoth. The head is four feet three inches long, three feet four inches wide, and three feet four inches deep, and two feet nine inches wide. The long, deep, powerful jaws set with teeth from three to six inches long and an inch wide. To this powerful armament were added the great sharp claws of the hind feet, and probably the forefeet, curved like those of eagles, but six or eight inches in length. The exact reconstruction of the forefeet is the only doubtful part. The forelimb is very small relatively to the huge size of the animal, but probably was constructed much as in the Allosaurus, with two or three large curved claws, the inner claw opposing the others. This animal probably reached the maximum of size and of development of teeth and claws of which its type of animal mechanism was capable. Its bulk precluded quickness and agility. It must have been designed to attack and prey upon the ponderous and slow-moving horned and armored dinosaurs with which its remains are found, and whose massive cuirass and weapons of defense are well matched with its teeth and claws. The momentum of its huge body involved a seemingly slow and lumbering action, an inertia of its movements difficult to start and difficult to shift or to stop. Such movements are widely different from the agile swiftness which we naturally associate with a beast of prey, but an animal which exceeds an average elephant in bulk, no matter what its habits, is compelled by the laws of mechanics 
to the ponderous movements appropriate to its gigantic size. These movements, directed and controlled by a reptilian brain, must needs be largely automatic and instinctive. We cannot doubt indeed that the carnivorous dinosaurs developed, along with their elaborately perfect mechanism for attack, an equally elaborate series of instincts guiding their action to effective purpose, and a complex series of automatic responses to the stimulus afforded by the sight and action of their prey might very well mimic intelligent pursuit and attack, always with certain limits set by the inflexible character of such automatic adjustments. But no animal as large as Tyrannosaurus could leap or spring upon another, and its slow stride quickening into a swift, resistless rush might well end in unavoidable impalement upon the great horns of Triceratops futile weapons against a small and active enemy, but designed no doubt to meet just such attacks as these. A true picture of these combats of titans of the ancient world we cannot draw. Perhaps we will never be able to reconstruct it, but the above considerations may serve to show how widely it would differ from the pictures based upon any modern analogies. One may well inquire why it is that no such gigantic carnivores have evolved among the mammalian land animals. The largest predaceous mammals living today are the lion and tiger. The bears, although some of them are much larger, are not generally carnivorous, except for the polar bear, which is partly aquatic, preying chiefly upon seals and fish. There are indeed carnivorous whales of gigantic size, but no very large land carnivore. There were, it is true, during the tertiary and Pleistocene, lions and other carnivores considerably larger than the living species, but none of them attained the size of their largest herbivorous contemporaries, or even approached it. Among the dinosaurs, on the other hand, we find that, setting aside Brontosaurus and its allies as aquatic, the predaceous kinds equaled or exceeded the largest of the herbivorous sorts. The difference is striking, and it does not seem likely that it is merely accidental. The explanation lies probably in the fact that the large herbivorous mammals are much more intelligent and active, and would be able to use their weapons of defense, so as to defy the attacks of relatively slow-moving, giant beasts of prey, as they do also the more active but less powerful assaults of smaller ones. The elephant or the rhinoceros is in fact practically immune from the attacks of carnivores, and would still be so were the carnivores to increase in size. The large modern carnivores prey upon herbivores of medium or smaller size, which they are active enough to surprise or run down. Carnivores of much larger size would be too slow and heavy in movements to catch small prey while the larger herbivores, by intelligent use of their defensive weapons, could still fend them off successfully. In consequence, giant carnivores would mid no field for action in the Cenozoic world, and hence they have not been evolved. But not all carnivorous dinosaurs, even of the Mesozoic, were so huge, for as we have small forms in the Triassic and Jurassic, so we find them in more or less intimate association with their larger cousins, to the end of the dinosaurian career. Out of the famous bone cabin quarry in eastern Wyoming, where the author was initiated into the mysteries of bone digging, 
and which has produced Allosaurus, comes Ornitholestes, an extremely slender form whose total length was not more than seven feet, and whose bulk could not have exceeded that of a setter dog. This form had long slender fingers, none of which were armed with the cruel curved claws of the megalosaurs. This suggested to Professor Osborne the idea that perhaps it may have preyed upon contemporary birds, so the name Ornitholestes, the bird robber, was given to it. Another student suggested that it may have preyed upon fish, and its association with amphibious dinosaurs lends color to the proposition. Be that as it may, the contrast between the marked agility of the present form and the more ponderous character of Allosaurus must have been reflected in the prey. A successor to the Comanchian Ornitholestes was Ornithomimus of late Cretaceous time, a form long known from its slender, very bird-like feet and a few other elements of its frame. The entire skeleton of an intermediate form, Struthiot menace, has only just come to light, having been discovered in Alberta in 1914. In its general proportions, it is what one would be led to expect from the character of the feet, but the surprise came in the fact that its jaws are entirely toothless, the skull reminding one quite forcibly of that of a large cursorial bird. In Europe and elsewhere than in North America, the remains of carnivorous dinosaurs are far less complete, and as a consequence, except for some very marvelously preserved Triassic types, we know but little of them. The generic name of Megalosaurus is applied to most of the later forms from the Jurassic to the final extinction, but doubtless covers as varied an assemblage of larger dinosaurs as lived in the New World. Sauropoda. To this group various names have been given. They were called Cetiosauria by Steely, in allusion to their whale-like bulk, and Opsithocelia by Owen, because their neck vertebrae, which have a ball and socket articulation, have the hollow facet behind and the convex one in front. According to the law of priority, this latter term takes precedence over the others, but Professor Marsh's term sauropoda is the one in most common use. These creatures were all quadrupedal, although there is reason to believe that when waterborne, they may have reared up on the hind feet. Their backbone is a marvel of complexity, and has been described in some detail in Chapter 12. The greatest economy of material is manifest in its structure, giving maximum strength with a minimum of bone substance. The limb bones, on the other hand, are extremely massive, with very rugose ends, as though the joints were formed very largely of cartilage, in sharp contrast with their bony perfection in the carnivorous forms. This imperfection of the joints in the sauropoda admits of but one interpretation, that of aquatic life, when the weight, largely water-borne, did not subject the ends of the limb bones to the mechanical impact, as it would were the animal wholly terrestrial. Matthew has directed attention to the fact that a line drawn from shoulder to hip separated the lighter portion of the animal's frame from the weightier, as though it represented the water line. Extreme lightness, especially of the neck, is necessary that it be not unwieldy in the creature's search for food, while weighty limbs were also necessary to enable their owner to wade into comparatively deep water, for these forms were doubtless more wading than swimming in their habits. 
In order to support their huge weight, the limbs had become more or less pillar-like, as the straight limb bones imply, and the sprawling gait of most living reptiles is unthinkable with so ponderous a form. All of our ideas of reptilian locomotion have been colored by observation upon living forms, often under unnatural conditions. For a crocodile just emerging from the water walks high on its legs, more like a mammal, and does not sprawl until it has come to rest. Then the limbs, one after another, are lifted and brought into the recumbent position. The teeth of the sauropods are clearly derived from those of carnivores, as they occupy the same place and arise in a similar way. They have, however, lost their sharp point and serrated margins and have become more or less spoon-shaped. As a rule, they are large, but in Diplodocus they are reduced to the size of a lead pencil and are confined to the extreme anterior part of the jaws. Claws also are clearly derived from those of carnivores and they are laterally compressed, but not so curved and give no evidence of grasping powers. The foot bore at least three such claws, while the hand evidently possessed but one. The food must have consisted of some abundant and easily obtainable aquatic plants, which were probably dislodged by the claws and rake-like teeth, and swallowed without mastication. The occasional presence within the ribs of highly polished siliceous pebbles of a material foreign to the matrix in which the specimens were found points to some sort of muscular gizzard-like structure which aided by the stones would reduce the otherwise inert mass of food to a proper condition for subsequent digestion such a thing is not without modern or ancient parallel among the notable sauropod genera is brontosaurus of which the very complete original specimen is preserved at yale a mounted specimen of similar proportion in the American Museum of Natural History measures 66 feet 8 inches long and had an estimated living weight of 38 tons. This specimen is from the Comanchean near Medicine Bow, Wyoming, and Yale specimen from Como Bluff, half a dozen miles away. Diplodocus, another sauropod, differs from Brontosaurus in the more slender form so that even with a length of 87 feet, it was by no means so weighty as the latter. All of these creatures had most of their length in the extremely slender neck and tail, the body being comparatively short and compact, quite elephantine, in fact, especially when viewed in connection with the limbs. In Diplodocus, possibly also in Brontosaurus, the terminal 10 feet of the tail was like a whiplash, as the contained vertebrae did not decrease further in size. This may have proved a very efficient weapon of defense, if its use was analogous to that of certain modern lizards in which the tail has much of the effectiveness of a black snake whip. Aside from this caudal whiplash, the sauropoda were apparently weaponless, relying entirely upon their huge bulk or upon submergence for immunity from attack. An essentially complete skeleton of Diplodocus from Sheep Creek, Wyoming, about 15 miles from Bone Cabin Quarry, is now mounted in the Carnegie Museum at Pittsburgh. By far the most gigantic of sauropods has been made known to us in its entirety from East Africa, whence with characteristic effectiveness the German government has secured a large amount of material upon which its savants were at work 
at the outbreak of the Great War. This creature, to which the appropriate name of Gigantosaurus has been given, is evidently the same as that described by the American Briggs as Brachiosaurus, out of deference to its mighty forelimbs, which, contrary to dinosaurian custom, exceeded the hind ones in length. If its proportions were those of Diplodocus, as the German authorities at first imagined, 120 feet for its total length would not be far from right. But the tail proves to be short, which brings the length down to 80 feet or more. Matthew therefore regards the creature as somewhat exceeding Brontosaurus and Diplodocus in total bulk, but distinguished by much larger forelimbs and an extremely long neck, a giraffe-like wader adapted to take refuge in deeper waters, more out of reach of the fierce carnivores of the land. Not all sauropoda, however, were large, for the author has restored from the Potomac beds, Comanchian, of Maryland, an adult form, Chloracellates, whose total length did not exceed 12 or 13 feet. The sauropoda, judging from their huge bulk, were evidently senile forms, and one would hardly expect their survival over a long period of geologic time, so that while their more conservative relatives, the carnivores, persisted, these forms were early released from the extensive burden of the flesh, and suffered racial death early in Comanchean time, some millions of years before the passing of the Dinosaurian dynasty. We know of no reason other than racial old age or a restriction of their particular habitat for their extinction. End of chapter 30. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah.